Let us pray. O God, fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I may speak your truth. Amen. Today is the second Sunday in Lent in the year of our Lord, 2021. Last year on this Sunday, I preached a sermon that talked about pilgrimage as a traditional Lenten practice. That was March 1st, and it was almost the last Sunday before we were all constrained to a level of solitude for which we were little prepared. I remember thinking in the weeks after that sermon that it would have been better to have preached on the way of the hermit as a Lenten practice. But we do our best, don't we? Given nobody can know the future. Anyway, I don't know about you, but I feel as if the entire year has been Lent. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. The Psalter selection today is the second part of Psalm 22. That's the psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted it while, on, while hanging on the cross. We'll be reading the first half of that psalm on Good Friday in just a few weeks. Now that's interesting to me. The editors of the lectionary scheduled the second part of Psalm 22 to be read today and the first part to be read on Good Friday. I think the reversal of the two parts of the psalm is intentional on their part, as if to remind us that the God we see today as victorious will appear in a few weeks in the pit of cruel suffering and isolation and despair. But the way the psalm appears in the Bible, suffering first and then victory, shows a profound truth that I take to be a fundamental Christian teaching. And it'll be my theme for today. God is mighty, not by domination and force, but by courageous vulnerability. This is one of the themes in the story of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis. You probably remember that God makes a covenant with Avram in chapter 15, that he would have an heir from his body and that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky and that they would eventually possess the land of Canaan. In chapter 16, that promise was as yet unfulfilled. So the problem of their childlessness is addressed directly by Avram and Sarai themselves. In the real world, childlessness doesn't pose so much of a problem. But the dramatic world of the Genesis story demands it. Sarai allows Avram to take her servant Hagar as a second wife, and she bears a son named Ishmael, giving Avram an heir. Problem solved. Here ends Genesis chapter 16. But then God shows up in our reading from chapter 17 today and gives them both new names. Avram becomes Avraham and Sarah, Sarai becomes Sarah. Now from here on out, I'll pronounce them like English people would. God tells Abraham that Ishmael would be indeed great, but he's not who God has in mind to be the heir. We're used to thinking of this as the story of Abraham, but in fact, it's probably better understood as the story of Sarah, because it's all about how she is to be the mother of nations. If it were just 
Abraham's progeny that mattered, Ishmael would have been acceptable, as indeed Abraham suggests to God. But any solution that renders Sarah unimportant is unacceptable to God. Just after today's reading, Abraham laughs, anticipating the laughter of Sarah in the next chapter. You probably know that all this laughing is a pun on the name Isaac, which means he laughs. But it's more than that, too. It's a sign of the level of pain this couple felt that when news of their suffering's end was announced, they could only respond with cynical laughter. Of course, God eventually lives up to his promise, and their son Isaac is born. But it isn't the end of their suffering, as you'll see if you go on and read through the rest of the Abraham story, which goes through about chapter 24 in Genesis. God's blessing doesn't rid them of hardships. If anything, God increases them. And yet they endured the pain as parents everywhere willingly suffer for the sake of their children. The suffering of parents on behalf of their children is in many ways a type of the redemptive love of Christ on the cross. This brings me to the reading from Mark's gospel where we learn that the divine way, the way by which Jesus is living his life, is a way that must go through suffering, rejection, and death. Peter tries to convince Jesus that since he is the Messiah of God, he shouldn't have to endure these things, that he should always be victorious, always smiling, happy, successful in everything, powerful enough to trample his enemies underfoot. Jesus' famous response, get thee behind me, Satan, goes on to give an explanation for why Peter is wrong. He is setting his mind on the things of humanity rather than on divine things. But let's dig into that a bit. This story is sandwiched between two other stories about Peter. Before the story comes Peter's bold answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, he said. And after our story, we have the story of the Transfiguration, where Jesus appears to be a shining divine being, holding counsel with Moses and Elijah. In both of these stories, Peter is a bit clumsy, but hardly satanic. Now, I don't myself believe that there's a personal Satan, nor do I disbelieve it. Certainly there is evil in the world. True, I've never directly encountered Satan that I know of, but it's hardly decisive. I'm an agnostic about Satan. But Jews and Christians of the first century certainly did think that there was a personal Satan. So this story can only be understood if we grant them the right to think their own thoughts and try to understand their story from within their frame of reference frame of reference. There are two things that need to be said about Peter being called Satan here. First, both the Hebrew Satan and its Greek equivalent Diabolos, where we get devil and diabolic, both of those words have ordinary non-demonic meanings that amount to somebody in court slandering an innocent person. 
Maybe Jesus is calling Peter not the proper name Satan, but the generic accuser or slanderer. In this way of understanding Satan in the story, Peter's trying to convince Jesus that the truth as Jesus has proclaimed it is false. The Greek sets up the story by saying that Jesus speaks boldly, paresia, as we'd say freedom of speech, against the powers and authorities. So Peter isn't just trying to hush him up, he's trying to sweep the conflict between Jesus and the authorities under the rug. The second thing to say is that for Mark, as for much of the first century Jewish and Christian thought, the world was binary. There were powers of this world which were under the dominion of Satan, and there was the God who was at war with them through exorcisms, healings, and truth-telling. And those two were opposite one another, and you had to choose one camp or the other. When Peter tells Jesus that he will be the victor in this war through his almighty laser eyes, and without anything that smacks of defeat, he is unwittingly choosing the wrong side. Maybe that's why Jesus calls him Satan. Whenever we hear it said that Christians are only about blessing and happy thoughts and prosperity, we have to reject that for the lie that it is. In the world of first century thought, the way to say that is to call it satanic. Even if you prefer not to use that terminology, the truth of it remains. It's simply not the case that living a good Christian life removes all suffering from you. For Jesus himself, as for all of his followers, victory over the dominion of Satan must be accomplished by following Jesus on the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow, the way of the cross. It's so easy to thank God for our blessings and paper over our hurts. What we do at a personal level, we also do at a societal level. If we think being a Christian allows complicity in the power structure of might makes right, and oh God, I thank you that I'm not like that poor woman, then we're part of the problem rather than part of God's solution. We have to learn to be honest about our pain and the pain of others, not to look the other way or whitewash it, but to face it with our whole selves. It's, the only, it's only by following Jesus on his way of suffering and self-denial and submission even to a martyr's death that we, like Jesus, will be victorious over the snazzy, well-marketed liars who want everyone to go along uh, and just be satisfied with the way things are. God's way is the way of moral vehemence, fighting for the right, not with the power of coercion, but with the greater power of self-sacrificial love. What would it profit us to do otherwise, even if we added the whole world to our portfolio? The way of self-denial and bold, bold self-risking testimony is supposed to be lived all year long, not just during Lent. 
But what we do in Lent is to remind ourselves by afflicting our souls that suffering is redemptive and the only path to restoration of God's good world. That's especially true of us comfortably situated people who find ourselves so often succumbing to the temptation to go along with the status quo. We fast in Lent to remind us that most most of of God's human beings don't live so easy. We deliberately walk the way of sorrow as an expression of our devotion to give us a chance to make our world more just. We engage in Lenten self-denial so that we can realize how pampered and selfish we really are, it's true, but more importantly, so that we'll see how we can live less selfishly through our whole life to use the goods which God gives us for healing and justice, like we're supposed to do. Following Jesus means denying ourselves and carrying our cross in imitation of our Lord. Let's really try to do that in Lent, and then keep trying to do it the rest of the year. We will always have pain. But if we endure it for the sake of others, that pain is transmuted into profound joy, not by escaping the pain, but by absorbing it into the larger context of love. Amen.